Sustainable investing is having a moment. As the coronavirus pandemic wreaks havoc in markets, investors are being forced to ask some fundamental questions about where to put their money. What sort of companies will prove most resilient in the face of such an unprecedented economic shock? What are the common factors that we can draw out? And to what extent do principles relating to good, environmental, social and governance, or ESG, play a role? Volatility in markets has given analysts at Fidelity a chance to put their own sustainability ratings, which launched last year, to the test. With me on the line today to talk through the results, what they might mean, and the light they shine on the future of sustainable investing are, first of all, Anna Victoria Kvass, an analyst on the ESG team at Fidelity. Anna, how does your work differ from that of other analysts? So we work together with research analysts and uh, we'll work on specific ESG themes, such as, for example, climate change and supply chain risk that may cut across. Across, uh, various industries. So you work hand in hand, you augment the, uh, the research done by the other analysts. Thank you. With Anna is Joe Hanmer, Director of Quantitative Research for Fixed Income. Joe, what does that mean? So in, in the quantitative research team, similar to the, the ESG framework, we're there to both support and enhance the output that the analysts have, but from a quantitative aspect. So we produce numerical analysis and data analysis from both a bottom up on a company level. But we also try and add value from the top down perspective by looking at the macro themes and macro from a quantitative aspect. Lovely. OK, the power of numbers. And completing the lineup today, Ned Salter, Head of Equities and Global Head of Equities Research. Ned, you've got a particular interest in sustainable investing, don't you? That, that, that's true, Richard. Yeah, I am um, I'm a passionate um, advocate of sustainable investing and I'm a member of the Sustainable Investing Oversight Committee as well uh, and have played a, played a role, hopefully a positive one, in getting our proprietary rating uh, established and rolled out across the Fidelity uh, Research Program within Equities and Fixed Income. Great. Okay. Well, what a wonderful team to be uh, to be talking to today. Thank you all very much indeed for joining me. Hello. Hello, Ned. Can you start by explaining, please, what was the question that um, this piece of research sought to answer, and why did you ask it now? Yeah. So this was a really interesting study that we ran a week or two ago, looking at the performance of the securities uh, associated with the Fidelity proprietary rating. So ultimately, what we wanted to see was the performance of the ratings in the post-crisis environment. And so we looked at how well did these companies perform relative to other companies that were rated along a similar lines on our proprietary ESG rating. And ultimately, the reason that we wanted to look at this was to begin to try to unpick whether or not there is a positive information signal in the ESG ratings. Uh, because I think ultimately we've, we're all of the view that we are at a really critical inflection point uh, in sustainable investing. A lot of asset managers have spent the last five years talking about sustainable investing. But ultimately, right now, given that we're in the midst of a global health pandemic and in a, in a sort of social crisis around the world, we thought it would be an interesting opportunity to take stock of how our analysis of sustainability uh, has performed. And before we get to the results, um, Anna, how do Fidelity's sustainable ratings work? How do you score a company's ESG credentials? Sure. So um, our ratings are very much based on having a forward-looking outlook. And so we divided our investment universe into 99 subsectors focusing on industry-specific material issues. And that's really important because you can focus on many, many hundreds of different issues, but focusing on those which are going to really have a sort of material impact for the company is important. 
And so we developed a set of uh, qualitative questions and that helps us assess uh, how these companies are performing and what risks uh, they're exposed to. So to give you an example of what we would kind of consider best practice, depending on what the, the material issue is around disclosures, around ESG, specific targets, uh, management incentives to implement these specific ESG developments. Uh, we're looking for management systems, how they're addressing these risks and, you know, whether they consider it to be a strategic opportunity, because at the end of the day, you know, we see ESG as contributing to the long-term success of a company. And if you're just doing ESG as a box ticking exercise, then, you know, you're really not getting the full potential out of uh, looking at these, at these different factors. Absolutely. Um, and and the, the, the full understanding of the company, which I think is probably something that we're going to explore um, uh, in discussion. Um, and it's, it's also forward looking as well. Um, t- tell me a little bit about that. What we're looking at is what are kind of some of the, the longer term initiatives that these companies have in terms of their, their ESG strategy. But then also we look at the trajectory. So each individual analyst will assess, is the company on a deteriorating path, on a stable path or on a improving path in terms of their ESG standards. Having that kind of forward-looking view will help us identify also potential engagement targets. So for us, it's important to not only kind of rate the companies, not to understand, only understand basically how are they going to develop uh, going forward, but also for those who maybe don't have best practices in place right now to help through dialogue, uh, to help them improve in terms of their own ESG standards. And that can be around improved disclosure. It can be around uh, providing examples around best practices or in in particular cases, helping them even sort of, you know, identify the issues and why this is important to to their business. Ned, you mentioned at the start of this episode that you were involved in in developing the ratings from their very inception. Um, What do you think is most important about them? Well, I think Anna brought up a really interesting point about about the ratings being forward-looking. And we are firmly of the view that the analysis of a company's sustainability uh, is inherently linked to that company's financial performance. And so we are fulfilling uh, multiple obligations for our clients, which is to deliver best-in-class financial returns by constructing portfolios that we think have terrific sustainability criteria. And so because our security selection process, both on the equities and the fixed income side of the house, is forward-looking, we needed our assessment of sustainability as well to be forward-looking. So we had that alignment between our analysis of sustainability and our uh, choice to include or exclude a particular security in a client portfolio. Now, you only ask five questions they are industry specific, but you only ask five questions um, of, a, of a company um, at any one time. Is that enough to get a proper handle on what that company is doing in terms of ESG? When we launched the Fidelity Proprietary Rating, the investment team in conjunction with Anna's ESG team spent a significant amount of time thinking about materiality and materiality mapping. And when we made the switch from third-party ratings into our own internal rating, we wanted the analysts and portfolio managers to be able to accomplish two things. The first was really to focus uh, exclusively on the things that matter most for a particular issuer. Uh, So if you're dealing with a natural resources extraction company, you wouldn't want to spend a lot of time worrying about uh, customer data and privacy. 
that would be something you know more suited for internet companies or banks, for example. So materiality mattered a lot, and we think we've done a good job narrowing down the number of risks to the things that matter most. And then I want to also echo Anna's comments. We wanted those questions to be able to form the basis of the discussion around engagement with those corporates. And certainly, we, we are in a privileged position of being able to meet with management many times a year. But when you do, you really want to spend the time with the chairman and CEO and CFO and leaders of that organization focusing on a few important things rather than on many things. You only get an hour every once in a while. Okay, so those are the ratings. Companies are scored A to E, and um, and that's what we then used as, um, uh, or rather, that's what jokes. I'm going to come to you. That's what you used um, as the basis of the research um, as we went into a period of extraordinary volatility in markets. So, can you take us through um, what you did and and then what it told you, please? Yeah, sure. So. As you might have expected, when we launched these ratings last year, we, we definitely didn't expect to have such a good environment for a case study so early. Obviously, this uh, amount of volatility that we've had in the market has meant that in a very short period after we've launched the ratings, it gives us a great opportunity to test how these ratings have performed in an, in an episode where they're supposed to perform, i.e. have they helped avoid some of the downside and avoid names that have underperformed in a large market correction like we've had over the past couple of months. Yes, you're definitely putting your, your quantitative hat um, on there by saying this was a brilliant opportunity um, as, as markets lost, uh, or share markets lost a third of their value or thereabouts. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, there is there are many downsides to this event, but from a quantitative aspect, we love data, right? And the more events that you can get in your studies and the more events you have to test your hypotheses, the better that is and the more rigorous it can make your quantitative models. So even outside of ESG, this sort of volatility proves a great testing ground for the different signals and the different models we develop as a quantitative team. So what was the result then? What what did it show you? So first of all, in the equity land, we split our companies into the A to E ESG ratings. And we looked at the performance in each of those buckets, just the average performance of the equities within each of those buckets throughout the uh, volatility that we've seen recently. And what we saw initially was that the A and B rated ESG names by our analysts significantly outperformed those names that were rated D or E. So a very good initial result. The first thing we noticed, however, when we drilled a bit deeper into uh, that analysis was that there was also a skew towards higher quality or names with better ROEs in our A and B rated names than in the D and E rated names. In general, you know, larger companies who tend to have be of a higher quality tend to have better ESG ratings. So this is something we wanted to control for and adjust for when looking at the performance. So we used the equity beta as a measure of that riskiness. If somebody doesn't know what equity beta is, um, Joe, what does that mean, just to just to explain that term? Yeah, so equity beta is a measure, basically, of how risky an individual company is compared to the market on average. So if a, if a company has an equity beta of two, it means it's twice as risky to own that stock as it is to own the equity market as a whole. And an equity beta of 0.5 would be half as risky as the overall market. So by adjusting by this number, we control for the relative riskiness of the different buckets, the A-rated 
names versus the D-rated names, for example. So this is like any experiment. You've, you've got the control um, uh, element in there now. Um, and once you'd taken that out, did the results still stand? Yes, that, that was a very supportive thing of the ratings we found. Even once we control for that beta, the A and B rated names still significantly out performed those D and E rated names in the equity world. Okay, and in the equity world, um, you work in fixed income. Was it the same uh, story for fixed income as well? Yeah, so in fixed income, it's a bit more complicated, the underlying analysis. The fixed income markets in general are much more complicated. So we have to control in a slightly different way. But the underlying results we found were extremely similar across the two markets. That the, as in equities, in fixed income, our higher rated ESG na names outperformed on a uh, excess return basis, which is the return on top of a government bond. Okay, a significant result then that implies that while the recent bear market looked like an indiscriminate sell-off, in fact, companies with strong ESG credentials performed better. Are there any other disclaimers that you'd like to, to get in now, Joe, um, just while we, uh, we look at the results? Yeah, I think, I think the biggest disclaimer is something we, we touched on slightly earlier with the, this period of volatility that whenever you're doing quantitative results or statistical analysis, the more data and the more information you've got, the easier it is to draw strong statistical conclusions from that. Given we only launched these ratings last year, this is the first experience we have of assessing these ratings. It's quite a short period to really um, assess the true significance of any performance or any information we find from it. So what we really need to see and what we will continue doing as we go forward and we gain more data and more performance is to continually monitor this performance to see how persistent it is through time. And that will only help us build our conviction and build the statistical significance of the results even further. Ned, we've, we've heard Joe explain there fantastically well um, the experiment that he, that he ran, the analysis. Was this a surprise to you? Was it, um, was it a relief, perhaps, to sort of see that the, the ratings seem to match performance or even predict it? I was really going to jump in on the point of caveats and disclaimers. Um, no, seeing the results, Richard, was really exciting. And we're pleased that, that, that obviously there is information contained in all of the hard work that these 180 analysts across the asset classes are doing. The one thing I would mention is that the time period that we looked at in the study that Joe uh, undertook was, was a relatively short period of market dislocation. And the way that we invest our shareholder capital is to, is to really think about that over the long term. And so as Joe mentioned, what's most interesting to us isn't just this one study, but allowing the study to recur over time to really flesh out what, what the signals are telling us. But, but again, we were, we were very pleased with the results. And Anna, coming to you again, taking into account what Joe has said, what Ned has said, what other research do you think um, needs yet to be done? What more could we be learning? Well, I think one of the things, and we've had some very early attempts at trying to look at this, is whether there are you know companies, for example, that may overall sort of score the same in terms of an ESG rating. So say, for example, an A, but that may have differences in terms of how they're performing, say, for material factors such as climate change. Like, are investors placing a greater emphasis on environmental or social issues or governance issues? Are there going to be certain themes that are driving kind of nuances? And I you know, put the emphasis on, on, on nuances in terms of outperformance. Because I think, you know, that will kind of help us in terms of as we look at the ratings going forward, 
further develop these and look at particular drivers. Absolutely, a powerful tool. Um, Ned, uh, does research like this mean that the investment team changes how they approach investment or that they look for different things? Um, could the ESG ratings become a more central part of um, the decisions that are made around companies? So my definition of sustainable investing is the formalization of the analysis of non-financial risks and opportunities. And when I grew up in the investment business, we focused almost exclusively on financial analysis, uh, upside, downside, revenues, margins, balance sheets, and cash flows. And what we, the, the journey that Fidelity has been on, and I think the asset management industry has been on over the last couple of years, is really to formalize the thinking about 360-degree perspective of, of, of stakeholder management, um, particularly relevant at a time in the midst of the COVID-19 uh, crisis. But how do companies interact with their full suite of stakeholders, not just shareholders? And clearly, uh, there is a link from that analysis directly to the financial analysis, because ultimately, companies that don't engage well with the 360-degree set of constituents and stakeholders tend to trade at a lower multiple. And so therefore, there are financial uh, consequences of not taking this analysis uh, to heart when, when sustainability analysis, when doing your financial analysis. So we really think that they're inextricably linked. And what about the conversations that are going on with companies? You talked about that right at the, uh, the, the top of this episode. But um, tell me about how um, this sort of research can inform those discussions. So one of the things that our clients have really asked for, which we owe to our clients, is to evidence that this uh, level of engagement is bearing fruit, so to speak. And so what we like to do uh, when we've determined a point of engagement, we like to set a series of KPIs associated with that point of engagement. So Anna talked about climate change. So the mitigation of you know, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, scope one, two, scope one and two primarily. So what are the KPIs that we can uh, use to determine whether or not a company is relatively good or relatively bad, but more importantly, improving over time? So every time we speak to the management team, we have the set of the KPIs, we run through them, we talk about how we think using our sort of broad view across sectors and industries could improve those credentials and the impact on that particular uh, key risk and set of stakeholders. And Anna, you talk to these companies. Um, how are the questions that you ask, um, how are they changing as you approach management? Well, I think many companies have started uh, embracing ESG. There are still some out there who, who maybe have not, but the industry and how things are measured is it's constantly sort of um, evolving. So what was kind of a best practice, you know, a couple of years ago may not necessarily be the case today. And so an example of that, you know, we'll ask companies, how are you re uh, planning to reduce your emissions? A couple of years ago, it may have been fine for a company to say, you know, we have a plan. Uh, we know it's important. And now the level actually of what we're sort of asking them for is around, you know, how are you disclosing and what's your rate of, you know, emissions change? What's your long term plan? How are you aligned to the two degree scenario? What are the management incentives, you know, that you're basically tying to climate change related? 
related issues. So it's much more becoming really about show me the evidence versus tell me the story. And Joe, um, what are the things that you're working on at the moment um, that might yet feed into those discussions that um, that Anna is talking about? Yeah, so some some of the research we're looking at the moment, which is proving most interesting, is looking at not just the level of the ESG rating, so whether it's an A or an E, but both the outlook and the change. So in this in this piece of research that we published, we've already started to look at the outlook that the analyst provides, which is improving or deteriorating, and actually some promising initial results there that improving companies tend to have better performance than those with deteriorating outlooks. What we'd also like to do and what we're working on is tracking the changes in ratings. So when an analyst changes their rating from an A to a B, is that really more of an informative signal in terms of a uh, performance measure or a forward-looking metric than the absolute level of the rating itself? And especially maybe if we if we can examine case studies where ratings have gone from a high positive ESG rating to a low ESG rating, how significant could that be and how could that impact the financial performance of a company? I think we'll be booking you in for one of these discussions very soon again. Um, Ned, um, we're coming towards the end now. Just how do you see the importance and the direction of sustainable investing developing over the next year to to two years as the world tries to get to grips with the crisis that we've got into that has distorted so many different things. How central do you think sustainable investing will be as we work our way through this and then hopefully move soon into a recovery? It's a really interesting question and it's a debate that I have with colleagues every day. Uh, and, and ultimately, the, the thing that I'm spending the most of my time thinking about right now is, is the idea of shareholder primacy coming to a cyclical or a structural end. And, and clearly there is an element contained in our assessment of, of, of sustainability that, that, as I said before, thinks about the full range of stakeholders rather than just you know, equity or fixed income uh, uh, shareholders. And so you know, this debate, I think, will carry on. And this is the one that we need to stay on top of. I do believe that cyclically, um, companies are going to be spending more of their time and energy taking care of uh, their employees and their customers than they have historically compared to the relative importance of, of shareholders. And that's something that, that I feel supportive of um, because there are some companies out there with a huge amount of capability to, to take care of all of their stakeholders collectively. So that shareholder primacy debate is one that I think is one that I think will sort of carry on. Uh, additionally, I think as asset managers become more values oriented in their approach towards sustainable investing, uh, that will be a nice uh, evolution for the industry as well. So asset managers on behalf of their clients are going to become much more rigorous about our focus on powering improvements in climate change, for example, as Anna talked about, or making sure that throughout the supply chains of the companies that we invest in, that labor is treated well. And so as asset managers become more focused on values, we will see a positive impact on society. So changes within asset management, not just the world in which asset managers um, operate. But that's all we've got time for today. Thank you to my guests, Ned Salter, Anna Victoria Kvass and Joe Hanmer. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark with production support from Alex Wilcox and Madison Fletcher. You can read the white paper on this research as well as more of Fidelity's latest thinking on everything ESG related at fidelityinternational.com forward slash ESG. But from all of us at Fidelity for now, goodbye.
This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.